Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 2. Glad that you're here this morning. Um, We are starting a uh, teaching journey that will tie together Sunday mornings and community groups uh, from now until the start of Advent at the very end of November. And so um, this is sort of a, let's establish a baseline of some concepts this morning that we'll, we'll explore more deeply in the coming weeks. Um, and in order to do that, we have to kind of understand a part of the story of Israel and then how that transfers into our journey as well. So, uh, we know one of the, like, uh, in terms of summarizing the history of, of the nation of Israel starts off with a promise made to Abraham. Remember Father Abraham had many, okay. Uh, and so those sons and, and uh, daughters, they had families and kids, and they grew into this nation that was then taken into slavery. And God had promised Abraham, he's like, this, this is a nation that will be not only numerous, but through your descendants, the entire world will be blessed. And in that, he meant primarily that through that lineage, Jesus would come. But he also meant that this nation was going to have a really unique story and play a really unique role in human history. And so they they went from the promise, and then they had uh, all these people, and then uh, those people were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. And uh, Jesus, Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, all of them got together, said, "We're going to uh, we're going to bring them out." And so Moses goes in, leads them out. And uh, before he led them out, he said, look, we're going we're gonna to go on a journey and we're going to bring you into your own land. There's something you need to know about this land. This is surrounded by other people uh, who worship gods that don't really exist, but they think that they do. They're worshiping all these created things. They're worshiping the sun and they're worshiping the crops and they're worshiping the moon and they're worshiping the river uh, They're even carving things into stone, into wood, and bowing down and worshiping those things. And they're all false. And so uh, I'm going to take this promised group of people and put them strategically on the map, surrounded by all these other nations. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take care of my people. And the other nations are going to watch the care and the provision given to the people of Israel. And they're going to look at these carvings that they're worshiping and they're working out this look at all this created stuff and they're going to say this is all false the god of israel is the one god he's the one that made all the stuff that we're worshiping and and so through that group of people the, the entire world will be blessed by revealing who god really is so god said on the front end it's very important that you not get lured into worshiping these other gods you have to stay faithful That's what he tells them in Exodus 20, one of the Ten Commandments. He says this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. That's that's one of the top ten commandments, right? They go into the, the land, you read all through the book of Joshua, and this is all these incredible conquests, and they establish themselves. And then you get to the book of Judges. This is what it says at the beginning of Judges. 
chapter 2, 11 and 12. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Baal was one of those false gods. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. Now, it's not the kind of anger, not not human earthly anger. It's different. We'll talk about that in a minute. So Exodus 20, he's like, hey, don't, don't do this. Judges 2, they did it. Very much human pattern, you know. So God begins to, to speak through these prophets to go in and to tell Israel, hey, here's, I've come from God to bring a message to you, and here's the situation. This is what you've done. This is what's going to happen. Uh, but it's always this, this like really, it's a firm, but it's a hopeful message because he's always calling them back. He's always calling them back. So Jeremiah is one of those prophets. And in chapter 2, Jeremiah, right out the, right out the, the chute, brings a really hard message to them. And what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks is we're going to use some of the imagery that uh, God gives Jeremiah and Jeremiah gives Israel. We're going to use some of those images to then look at our, in the mirror a little bit about our own condition. And so today we'll study what that is. And so look at, look at verse 12, and thir- verses 12 and 13. We'll start at verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Okay? Now, when we're talking about the Lord being angry, I said earlier, it's not, it's not this like human kind of anger. Uh, we have this, this very well-documented uh, bad habit as, uh, as humans where we, don't, we, don't, we struggle with having a point of reference for God and his character and how he responds to us and handles us. And so what we tend to do is grab the closest earthly thing we can and just like put that on him and assume that he's the same way. And since God is an authority figure, we tend to grab onto our authority figures, usually from our childhood. And so statistically, you tend to think that God handles your mess ups the way that your earthly dad handled your mess ups. And there's a wide spectrum there. Right? Some of you had, some of you had dads that handled your mess ups the way that Jesus does, and that's fantastic. Um, a lot of you, though, that would not be the case. And so we tend to, like, when we, like, mess up or we think about how does God feel about my sin or my own idolatry or whatever it is, uh, we tend to think in earthly terms and we need to, like, with God's help, lay that aside. Because what, what the scriptures tell us about God's reaction to our sin is it's grief. Like it's, he's broken hearted over it. There, there, is a, there is a righteous anger that, that's there, but the anger is at, the, it's at this sin disease that we carry. That's, that's what he wants to eradicate. That's why Jesus came to take care of the sin and to spare the sons and daughters who are carrying uh, that sin. But when he's looking at the, how those fit together, there's a sadness there. He's, in this verse, he's called heaven together as his witness. And he's like, let's grieve over this. Let's be stunned by this. Let's, 
Look at this incredibly heartbreaking situation that has happened. And so it would behoove us greatly to to be reminded of what we see when Jesus is on the earth. Um, there was there's this one story where uh, there's a there's a healing that's about to happen, and it says that Jesus sighed, and that word in the original language is this like deep groaning, almost like he's like I just I can't keep the grief in that he grieves over our sin. He stood before Jerusalem and looked over them and wept because he's like, they're shepherdless. We have to do something about this. And that's the same sentiment that we see here as heaven comes together and God says, let's, let's weep over what is happening. It makes a little more sense when you look at verse 13, which will be the crux of our next few weeks together. It says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God sends this message through Jeremiah, and he says, I'm going to explain this in two, two interconnected parts. These are not two separate parts. They're, they're, they're linked to one another. And the first thing, he says, they have forsaken me. Forsaken is a, that's a relational word. And this is a, it's a painful way to talk about it because uh, it just is. But he speaks in terms of infidelity. And that, just that word alone hits close to home for many in this room. Many watching by live stream. The infidelity brings a pain Relationally, that is very unique. Um, lots of things bring pain in our relationships, but there's something different about infidelity. A few verses earlier in verse 2, Jesus referred to Israel this way. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in the land not sown. He says, I remember when it, He's talking about when they when they came out of out of Egypt and they were traveling through the wilderness and there was this like dependence upon God and he says you were like a bride I'm the groom and now you have forsaken me and that language is a language of infidelity and so that brings a different kind of pain to the Lord and it's important for us to to let that kind of be heavy on us you know that sin sometimes seen as like, oh, it's, it's annoying or it's a bad habit or, uh, you know, I'm kind of callous to it because I've been caught in it so long. There's all these different kinds of things. But from the perspective of our Lord, it's infidelity. It stings in a very unique way. Not only is that important, but... Like, like, to, like to to understand, which I'll I'll talk more about that in in a little bit. To understand that infidelity is what he's dealing with. Like he, to him, idolatry and infidelity are the same. Um, we have to think about who it's happening to. That Israel has looked at God and said, "You are not enough for me, so I'm going to forsake you and turn to these other gods." 
Look who it's happening to. He's been only faithful to them, only good. He's the God of their fathers. He's, he's the God who led them out of slavery. He's the God that provided food and water in the wilderness and guided them every step of the way. He brought them into the land. Um, he is, I am. He's perfect, holy. And yet Israel looked at him and said, you are not enough, we need more. And they have forsaken him, turned from him to these other gods. It's a, it's a heavenly tragedy, you know. And so, if that, if that, if you feel the like weighted blanketness of that, good. That's what should be happening for us. He says they have forsaken me, and then he compares himself to. He says, he says, I'm the fountain of living water. I was reading in the the ESV Study Bible, which is a great, great resource, and they were explaining that in this part of the world. Uh, there, there. If you if you were a farmer, you had three ways of taking advantage of of the rainwater in order for your crops or for your um, flock. The first way is if you were fortunate enough to have a stream or a spring on your land, and they would refer to springs as fountains. And uh, so it was kind of this thing of like, here's, here's this stream or this spring, this fountain. We don't know where the water comes from. We don't know where it goes. But we know it passes through our land. And it's clean and it's fresh. And because it had movement to it, they, they thought of it as being alive. Like God, God has given us this water that is alive and it brings life to us. And so living water was a, a phrase, an idea that was associated with, with that. Um, so that was the, the number one way if you were fortunate enough to have a spring or a stream on your land. The second thing uh, that you could do is you could dig a well and let the groundwater like, seep into that well. Um, if you were fortunate enough to have the, the kind of like actual like physical land where you could do that and it was beneficial. But even then, well water was dirty, you know, and whatever. But it was a, it was a way. The third and least desirable of them was a was a cistern. And uh, he says they have hewed out their cisterns, which I'll talk about that in a second. But a cistern was just a pit, basically. And you would run, you dig channels, like ditches, basically, to try to filter the water into this pit. And it was least appealing for a bunch of reasons, but basically it just became really, really stagnant. And uh, parasites would grow in it very easy, easily, much like in South Louisiana. Uh, mosquito larvae and different things loved still water, that kind of stuff. And so um, you didn't want that, but it was, a, if, it was a last resort kind of thing. And so for Jeremiah to stand in front of people and call God the fountain of living water, they would have known exactly what he's talking about. It would have made perfect sense to them. The other sources were just the backup plan, the last resort. But the living water is what you wanted. No one would reject a fountain of living water, in other words. No one would forsake that. 
But he says that's what's happened. And not only have they forsaken him, the fountain of living water, he sticks with that water metaphor. He says they've hewn, which means to dig, your own cist- they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that do not hold water. And so if you, if you were uh, in a situation and you needed to dig a cistern, here's what you had to do. Uh, the terrain there was mostly limestone. And so um, is Greg here, Greg Keller here? Greg, you can, uh, you can fact check me later on on this one. But uh, it was limestone. He's a geologist, so he's perking up, ready to point out my mistakes. Um, you, would, uh, you would do the, the difficult work of dig- digging a pit out of limestone. And you would basically make this big hole in the ground, and then you would have, they had a way of making a kind of what we would call a plaster. And they would uh, coat the inside of this pit with this plaster so that it would make like a seal, you know. And then they would dig ditches and try to uh, like, like angle them to where whenever it rained, the water would come into the ditches and would flow into this pit that they had dug. And um, as I said, the water was stagnant. The water was dirty when it got there. It was carrying parasites. It would grow more. It was just a cesspool, basically. Um, and then, the, uh, as if that's not appealing enough, the, uh, you do all that work to get dirty, um, nasty water that's going to make everybody sick. And then the plaster just doesn't hold up. And so eventually it starts to crack, and when that cracks, then all that water just seeps down through the cracks in the limestone and goes away anyway. So it doesn't even hold the water. And so what they would do with these broken cisterns, you could only repair it so many times, and then it was just now you have this big hole in the ground. And so what do we do? What do we do with a hole in the ground? Uh, well, we bury dead bodies in it. That's what broken cisterns were used for in this part of the world at this time. Um, they were graves. So, through Jeremiah, God is making a very clear distinction. I'm the fountain of living water. You are digging cisterns for yourselves that are broken to start with. The very thing you need them to do is is not only making you sick, but ultimately it's going to fail, and ultimately it's going to become a grave. That's the those are the dots that would be connecting. For these listeners. It was a desperate last resort. So, in this analogy, he is saying that he is the living water and that the idols they're worshiping are the broken cisterns. They had very specific ones. There was Baal and Asherah were the main, the main ones. And as I said earlier, you're talking about carvings in, out of wood or stone that they would bow down and worship in all kinds of different ways. They had all kinds of other things they would worship as well. And God is like trying to help them see the ridiculousness of this choice that they have made. And Paul helps us understand idolatry a little bit because uh, I remember growing up in Sunday school thinking like, oh, this doesn't apply to me because I would, I would never worship a statue, you know, and there, now there's worship of that that happens all around the world. But I, I remember thinking, oh, this idolatry, that's for other people. That's for other cultures. That's for them at that time. And then Paul comes in in Romans one, he explains it this way. Uh, verse 22, he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So there's this exchange, right? There's this forsaking that happens. You swap them out. Then in verse 25, he says this. He says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. I see that, that doesn't limit it to a cultural trend. It doesn't limit it to a statue or um, worshiping the moon. Anything that is created can become an idol. And this is not just for ancient cultures or uh, polytheistic cultures in our own world. This is, this is an us thing as well. And I don't bring this to Living Hope because I'm like, guys, I got to tell you, I see a huge problem in our congregation and we're going to get after it and address it. This is not like, like this is coming from the Lord, I, I believe, as like, no, we, we need to study this because our idols are so subtle. Our like American idols, shouldn't have said that, stupid TV show. Simon Cowell, can't even use that anymore. But no, like our idols for us as, as like Westerners in America, are, they're, they're so subtle, but they're, they do the same things to us that they did to them. It's like, here are these really good things. The sun, the moon, the river, the crops. Here are these really good things that took on a life of their own because we exchanged them for something. And so in, in praying and trying to figure out, okay, God, where do you, where do you want this, us to go between now and Advent? I kept coming back to this thing, my, the living water, digging your own wells. Like that, that whole thing kept coming back to it. But yet, I was very resistant to it. And I'll tell you why. Um, I think some of the resistance is like all resistance, where there's a, it's like you know it's true. And you just kind of don't want to mess with it. So that's certainly a part of it for me. But I really struggle with the forsaking idea because I was like, God, I don't, I don't think I've forsaken you. And when I look around our, our faith community, our church family, I don't see people just forsaking you. Like turning their backs on you, like infidelity, like that kind of thing. I don't see that. And so I'm... I don't. I just don't know. I'm not sure what to do with that part of it. And I feel like the Lord reinforced something that He actually. Uh, some of you, this is a strange reference, but some of you were at Grace maybe ten years ago when I like stood on the communion table without thinking about it. Anybody remember that? Okay, good. That's good thing they weren't live streaming back then. That'd be on the CNN or something. But. Um, <laughs> It was back then, like the Lord kind of like brought the same thing and he circled me back to that. And it's like, yeah, like with most American idolatry, you know what? It's not that you're forsaking, like, like turning your back. It's that you're trying to have both. It's that you, we, we want both of those things. We want to have the, the fountain of living water and we want to dig our own wells. So it's not that we turn our back on the Lord, but 
like we're like God's over here and these other things are over here and we're saying, I don't want you, I want you. It's like we're stepping back. We're saying, how about, how about let's bring all this together? How about my life can, my, my like the land of my life can have streams and springs and cisterns on it? That would be good, right? What's, what's so wrong with that? And so because it doesn't feel like infidelity on my part, I assume it doesn't feel like infidelity on God's part, and God has a different way of looking at a lot of things. And so just like his kindness with Israel, God is kind with us in being willing to come into our lives and say, hey, I, I want to I diagnose some problems. Do you, do you want to know what is killing you? you know? Do you want to know why you feel like you're suffocating sometimes? Do you want to know why, um, why this or this or this or this or this? I'll, I'll show you. It's like a doctor doing a full workup and he comes back in. He's like, do you want to know what's in the folder? It's, it's his kindness that says, let, let's, let me show you what the problem is and the, and the solution. Oh, that's what God wants to do with us, right? He wants to, to show us the futility of the digging our own cisterns, but also the beauty of who he is. And say, hey, let, let me just lead you from your idolatry back into covenant faithfulness. That's the... That's what the next few weeks will be about, hopefully. And a part of what makes it difficult is that these cisterns that we're digging, they, they're not like evil things by our, our definition. You know, They tend to be really good things. And so it's hard to know, well, what, what makes something idolatrous to me? Like it's, it's hard to... It's sometimes hard to know. Is this an idol or is this like a good thing? Like, is this a way that God blesses and keeps me or has it become something else? And I was thinking about like about it in terms of, of his own imagery here. Like, digging a cistern, like if you were to just go with the ag metaphor for a second, digging a cistern could be an act of great wisdom by a veteran farmer who's like, look, the dry season is coming. We need to dig this cistern and we need to get the plaster going and we need to do the whole thing so that we can water the flock or the crops or whatever during the dry season. That could be, right? Like some of the things that maybe are idols for us could be presenting as like, no, isn't that wisdom? Isn't that a good thing? But digging a cistern and that same like farmer, like he could be. That's is what we're going to do. And maybe someone in the family is like, "Hey, but shouldn't we just trust God to provide? Should we just believe that God is going to send the rain when we need it? He's going to take care of us as his people." And the farmer could say, "Yeah, but what if he doesn't? What if God? What if God doesn't come through in the way that I want Him to come through? Got to have this backup plan, right? It's like, oh, I, I I believe that He can, but He might not. So I got to make sure of this or this or this. 
See, digging a cistern could be an act of wisdom or it could be a control mechanism because we're afraid of what may happen. See that, how do you know when it's one or the other? How do you, how do you know when a good thing has become corrupted, but you're still seeing it as good? That's what I want to explore in the next couple of weeks on Sundays and in groups is what are some of these cisterns that we are digging for ourselves? What are the things we're going to in order to find security or comfort or joy or direction or peace? There's all the, there's like all these obvious things that come up, you know, of course. If I was like, what do you think the topics are going to be? You know, or like money, career, you know, that kind of stuff. But what about, what about some of the more subtle things? What about, what about comfort? Do you think comfort could be an idol of ours? Did we learn anything from Hurricane Ida? Or our flood? Or Katrina? Or any of those kind of other things? Not accusing anybody of anything at all. I'm just saying it exposes how much we hate to be uncomfortable. And we'll go to great lengths to avoid it. Does that make it an idol? Not necessarily. But it does expose something that proves to be very, very cherished to us. And maybe, maybe God wants us to think about those kinds of things. Maybe God says, you know, it's worth it. It's worth it to figure out when it comes to being comfortable, are you refusing to live by faith? And controlling everything in your life so that you're always comfortable not only physically, but also comfortable emotionally, comfortable socially, right? We hate to be awkward, you know, so we'll avoid those kind of things. Like, like are, have we, like, without even realizing it, are we, are we looking to comfort to soothe something within us, not realizing that the fountain of living water is over here, being like, hey, those, those things are broken. You can go without AC, you can go without... A home, you can go without all these kinds of things, and it's not. It, it's. I can still fulfill you. I can. You can still be complete because of who I am. You can go through seasons of of drought. You can go through seasons of of abundance, and yet your circumstances don't have to bully you and push you around because you have the fountain, and that water is alive. You know. That's what that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Could it be that God in his kindness is saying, "Hey, I want to I want to expose some things, some things that you are looking to to find stuff that I am here ready to provide you with in abundance from the source that never ever runs out." Do you do you want to keep going to the broken cistern or do you want to live the life I created you to live like that kind of thing? So some of you are like, I don't know if this is going to be very fun or not. Well, hey, I, come and preach it, you know? Like, I don't know. But what I want to know, I want to know what you're thinking like, as I'm talking about it. I want to know what are the things that you hope to hear talked about because you're recognizing already, like, man, this is just a, I'm not sure what to do with this, you know? So that's a little bit of where we're going. But let's get something straight from the very beginning, and you'll probably hear this a lot in the next couple of weeks. It, we can, we can talk about the different cisterns that we go to. We can 
like breaking all that stuff apart and all that kind of stuff. And that, that's good, and we'll do some of that. But the, 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 real, the real solution here is not to point out the like, ridiculousness of broken cisterns. It's to point out the beauty of the fountain of living water. Like, that's, that's really what this is all about. It's, it's just that simple. That when we see God for who he is, we see, when we see Jesus for who he is, that everything else will fall into its right place. All your circumstances and comforts and things with finances and family and relational dynamics and career and all this, all those things will find their proper place when Jesus has his proper place. And instead of trying to have all of it, we realize that I, he is all that I need. He tells us, I've given you everything you need for life and for godliness. Just through knowing him, as he continues to call us to his own glory, his own excellence. The Lord is your shepherd. You lack nothing like that. That's that's really what this whole series needs to be about. You know, yeah, we need to come into the mirror and look and, and for God to be able to sit like surgically, let's cut these things out. Let's 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 let me show you the right way to think about this and this and this and this and this. But at the end of it, it all comes back to you, him being him. When we see him for who he is, there's you don't want anything else. N- this gift of scripture that we have, they have this like really peculiar, quirky book at the end. It has a lot of stuff in it that no one really understands. And if anyone ever tells you that they understand it perfectly, they don't. Revelation does not make a ton of sense in certain parts of it. But there are some parts you're like, okay, I get it. And in some in some way, it is giving us a glimpse into the future. And in the future, apparently we don't have the struggles with like seeing God purely that we do now. We don't have all these things battling for lordship. We don't have all these dead idols somehow like finding voices in our lives and all that kind of stuff. We, we will just have a perspective that is pure and focused and what the scriptures allow us to do is we can look at that future and pull it into the present. And Jesus is saying the kingdom is available to you now, meaning you can live this way now, meaning we can heal from all of our idolatrous mess that's inside of us and we can walk in wholeness and purity. That's the hope of the gospel, right? And so what I want to do in closing is... Uh, Rather than pick apart certain cisterns like we'll do in the next couple of weeks, just I just want to read from our future and let pull that into the present. And then we're going to sing a little bit. And at the end of that, I want you just to think, do, do I now want to turn to anything else for anything else? You won't. It doesn't work that way. So if you would, close your eyes. I'm just going to read it over us. And then I'm going to pray. After this, I looked and behold, 
a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and people and languages were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them or any scorching heat, for the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Father, when we see you in your proper light, everything else finds its right place our desire of course is to live that way you know there's so much vying for our attention and our affection and our devotion and uh, it could be a battle so would you help us to remember that your nearness your presence and your care, the power of your spirit, and a million other things that you've given us are there to walk us down that path of righteousness for your name's sake. That because of who our shepherd is, we lack nothing. And you don't Want us, you won't stand by and let us eat from anything less than the greenest of pastures or drink from the best water. And you're there restoring us. And even though we walk through some of the hardest things life can bring us, we don't have to be afraid because you're right there with us. Your faithfulness and your strength, we, we've seen it and we see it there and it comforts us. sit at that table and look back and say that your goodness and your mercy followed us every moment of our lives. And we'll lift a glass and celebrate the fact that we will dwell in your house forever.
not because of our own effort, not because we have earned it, not because we have tried really hard, because we believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that Jesus really is that good and has done what he has done. He has taken our death upon himself and given us his life. And he being resurrected shows us and guarantees us that our future is real and that we can make it. This kind of goodness, this kind of God, who who would want anything else? We love you and we now we stand and sing in your honor and your name. Amen.